I think that uh, would be one of my favourite contemporary hymns in Christ alone. What a wonderful anthem of praise that is, isn't it? We have nothing outside of Christ. As believers, as followers of Christ, we have nothing outside Him. And it is a wonderful anthem of praise. Hey, it's nice to be back. Nice to be back. I, I trust you had a, a nice weekend last weekend as you, you had your Mission Sunday. And I look forward to picking up in Ephesians again this morning. How are you going with your reading and your writing? Slowly. Well, I don't mind your reading and writing slowly. That's okay. Encourage you. Encourage you all. I gave a challenge uh, probably uh, three or four weeks ago. Grab the book of Ephesians, try and read it in a sitting. Take about 10 to 15 minutes. Try to do that 20 times. And as you do, it will become just part of you. You know, it's not uh, by coincidence that in God's word it says meditate upon his word day and night. And that's just a simple way of doing it, by reading. Another way is by grabbing a notebook and writing it out. It's amazing how that works for me personally. Um, different people have, you know, respond differently, but for me, when I write out scripture, I'm taking it with my eye, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about each phrase, each sentence, and it's just a wonderful part of meditation. So I encourage you to do that. So as uh, I stated, we're, we're going to be back in the book of Ephesians after doing a small digression last time we met into the book of Colossians this morning. So we're looking at this whole aspect of what does it mean to walk as followers of Christ? That's the series. What does it mean to walk as followers of Christ? Many weeks ago we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and it said we could no longer walk. We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive in Christ. So there's a transition that has taken place when you place your faith in Christ and when you accept God's grace in your life. A transition takes place. You are no longer the old person. You are now a new creation, a new person in Christ. This is, uh, and there's a responsibility in that. There's a responsibility in being a new creation. It'd be just like if you were conscripted to perhaps a, a sporting team. And since I'm a New Zealander and I'm a proud New Zealander, I'll talk about my favourite sporting team. So it's the All Blacks, okay? Rugby Union. So if I was conscripted to the the all-black team, there is a certain ethos, there's a certain standard of behaviour that is required. Did you know, and I'll give you a fact about the mighty all-blacks, um, did you know that uh, they're about the only sporting team in the world and they are the best in their code and they have been for years, at the end of every match, one of the things they, one of the things they do as part of their culture is they leave the dressing room exactly the same way they have found it. So part of their culture is that they'll get together, they'll clean the thing up to a standard that was equal or better than what they, when they had first moved into that dressing room. These guys are world champions. They're multimillionaires. 
and yet part of their team culture, part of being an all black, part of being part of that identity is that's what you do. We have a greater weight of responsibility as followers of Christ. A greater weight of responsibility. His Spirit dwells within us, the Holy Spirit dwells within us in a new identity. And we have a responsibility to walk according to our calling. That's where we started in Ephesians 4, chapter 1. The theology of who God is and what God has done and how he has saved us is, is outlined in Ephesians 1, 2 and 3. And then we have this critical hinge point in Ephesians 4, 1. You are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. You're no longer your own. And everything that Christ has done for you is the motivating factor for now how you live. And what Paul does for these Ephesian believers is he he starts talking through how that looks. He moves from what we call the indicative, what God has done, to the imperative, our response to what God has done. If you want another fancy term for this, this is the, the grammar of the gospel. The facts about what God has done. He has saved you. He has made you alive. He, by His grace He has given you faith to believe. And He's prepared works beforehand, before the foundation of the world for you to walk in. That's the facts about what God has done. And the commands are there to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Walk in your new Identity. Last time we met, we looked at Colossians and we, we saw also the command to walk. And the command was based on the fact of what has been received from Christ. And the command to walk was based on the fact that we are in union with Christ. We are rooted in Him. We are being built up in Him. We are being established in our faith. And that should pour out thanksgiving in our hearts. But there was a warning. Watch. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for those false teaching. And realize who you are in Christ. That's the, that's the, um, the shield against false teaching. Is realizing who you are in Christ. Realizing that through God you've been made alive in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. The devil of sin has been nailed to the cross and you have victory over all spiritual opposition because Christ has disarmed all spiritual opposition. (coughs) So our walk is a transformation process. Right? It's a slowly moving forward. That's why I particularly like the ESV version of of the, the Bible here. NIV says live. Yeah, live, I get that. We live for Christ. But walk, I like the, 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 the metaphor of one step after another in progression towards the goal. So we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're called to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We're called to be motivated 
by the fact of what God has done for us in our walk for him. We've had read for us this morning Ephesians 4. I won't read the text again, but I will clearly make note of it. So if you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at this paragraph and uh, from verse 17 through to verse 24. And really what Paul is doing here, he, he sort of started this encouragement and exhortation back in uh, 4 verse 1. And he, he talked about, in this first half of chapter 4, all about the unity. All about the result of, of having a godly walker's unity. He used an example of the Father, Son and Spirit as being completely unified in the Godhead in the start of chapter 4. He talks about our walk being full of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing one another in love. He also shows us that God has given us gifts, spiritual gifts for the body of the church to unify us, to equip the saints for the works of ministry so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And then he returns here in in verse 17 and he returns with a, a pretty strong charge to these Ephesians. How do we know this? Well, we read the verse. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, or this I say and I urge you in the Lord. The authority of what he's saying is based on what the Lord is saying. And it's a strong excitation. It's not sort of a mild invitation. He's not saying to the Ephesians, hey, I just want to chat to you about something and if you want to listen, that's okay. He's turning the buns of burner up a little bit. He's saying, I want to urge you. I want to really say something to you that's just really important about your walk, about who you are in Christ, about your identity, about how the gospel should shape everything you do. And he gives two examples here. Verse 17 to 19, he gives a negative example of what it means to walk. And verse 20 to 24, he gives a positive example of what it means to walk. And his negative example is based on the Ephesian believers' past life. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So charge them, don't live like unbelievers. Don't walk like unbelievers. That was your former life. He wants to instruct them how to walk in holiness and we'll get to that as he starts to unfold that from verse 20 onwards through to the end of the chapter actually so we'll be looking at that over the next two weeks. But once again he contrasts the new life in Christ versus the old way of living. And in this solemn exhortation he's imploring them to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. 
which would be a better translation. Do not walk as the Gentiles walk. And he starts giving reasons why. Firstly, the futility of their minds. What's a futile mind? What is a futile mind? Well, a, a futile mind is a mind that uh, is empty. It's a mind that is purposeless. It's been used in a way that has no value. And in this context, what is Paul driving at? Why were the unbelieving Gentiles futile in their mind? I think they were futile in their mind because they couldn't comprehend God's revelation. They couldn't comprehend God's revelation of who he was because of the fall. When Adam and Eve fell, our minds fell. Our view of God, who he was and his revelation became increasingly clouded. So the Gentile mind here is empty towards God's revelation. The mind is unable to perceive the the revelation of God for which it was designed. Put it another way, the mind's attitude or aptitude or disposition prevents it from achieving its goal of proper moral decisions which are necessary for life. I think we see this in today's culture, right? Just have to turn on your television set, okay? Have you noticed as the programming on television has tended to start moving towards many, many episodes about criminal activity? You notice that? Criminal Minds, NCIS, Crimes That Shook Australia, 60 Minutes, every time you watch 60 Minutes is about some heinous crime. It shows, they're trying to show the psychology of a killer. I just turned to Ephesians 4.17 to work out the psychology of a killer. Futile minds. A mind that opposes God. It doesn't necessarily need to be a psychotic killer. It can be your lovely neighbour next door who doesn't know Christ. Their mind is futile towards the things of God. So they fill their minds with other things, with the pursuit of happiness, with the pursuit of material well-being, pursuit of many other things that draw the mind away from who God is, who Christ is, and the importance of salvation only through him. See, Paul draws... This back to the Gentiles. He says, back to the Ephesian believers, you were like this. This is how you were. This, your whole city reeked with this. If you know much about Ephesus, it was a place where there was a, a temple. They worshipped a god called Artemis. It was all about debauchery and prostitution. It was all about sensuality. 
The whole place was awash with idolatry to this little god thing called Artemis. Futile in their thinking as they worshipped. Sex as they worshipped this idol. The whole economy of Ephesus was based around the temple. Futile. Another one of Paul's texts which helps us understand this is, is uh, Romans chapter 1. I'll just read briefly Romans 1 to you. Romans 1.21 starts saying this, For though you knew God, you do not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's a commentary of a futile mind. When humanity moves away from worshipping God to worshipping the creature. Secondly, as we look at this text, not only were their minds futile, not only were they purposeless and valued nothing, they were darkened in their understanding. The reason they walked in the futility of their minds was because their reasoning processes had become darkened. The reasoning became clouded and darkened in the sense of spiritual and moral darkness. Not in the sense of engineering reasoning or just life and reasoning, but in the sense of spiritual reasoning. The mind is darkened. Romans talked about that. It was a reality in, in the life of Ephesus prior to these folks being marvellously saved. Thirdly, Paul comments that their minds are futile, they are darkened in their understanding and therefore they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And this is the this is the, the shocking reality of an unregenerate life. And Paul highlights it here. It's a shocking reality that when you, your minds are darkened and your reasoning is clouded towards spiritual things, you are alienated from God. It's the same word that Paul uses earlier in Ephesians. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, he makes this commentary just after giving the wonderful encouragement that it's by grace you have been saved and God has made you alive and God has given you a, a life to walk and he's given you a purpose. He reminds them of who they were. In Ephesians uh, two twelve, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ prior to coming to him, alienated, same word, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
So to be alienated from God is to be separated from God. And it means that unregenerate people have never enjoyed life in God. This is what we call depravity. And so your nation is because of ignorance, it's because of a lack of perception about the things of God. And this lack of perception is actually an act of the will. It's not an innocent ignorance. Once again, you go back to Romans chapter 1 there, and as we read that, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It is a known willful act. Romans 1.29, that same portion, 25, sorry, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Paul makes it very clear in Romans and he makes it very clear to the Ephesians that human beings reject the manifest knowledge of God and exchange that knowledge for lies. Because the reasoning processes have become dull, they become clouded, and they have a senseless heart. As we see there, the, the reason that the will is against God is because of the hardness of the heart. It's a flagrant refusal to acknowledge God. Flagrant. You know what the word flagrant means? Probably the best way of describing, I'm a bit of a sports buff, so I use, use sporting analogies here. If you play basketball, you can run down to one end of the hoop there and you can just take a person out. That's what you call a flagrant foul. If the ball is nowhere near the person, you just run the person over and take them out. It's a flagrant foul. It's absolutely knowing what you're doing, but it has nothing to do with the flow of the game. This is the same here. You absolutely, the unregenerate knows what they're doing and they have a flagrant refusal to acknowledge God. This type of ignorance shows the state of the heart. It is hardened towards God. So we have a futile mind, we have a darkened understanding, which leads to ignorance and hardness of the heart. And then finally, we see the character of an unregenerate person. And uh, he uses three nouns here to describe that. Firstly, he makes a broad statement, they have become callous. To become callous, what does it mean to become callous? I know sometimes you get a callous on your hands, right? When you work hard and you, you, you get blisters, they're calluses, but that's not the type of callousness we're talking about here. This type of callousness is a dead to feeling. Become callous means you become dead to feeling. You have no sense of right or wrong. And you can see naturally when you have no sense of right or wrong, then this callousness results in an immoral conduct. And that's what he describes here. He describes immoral conduct. And I particularly like the, the New English translation as they translate verse 19. 
Because they are callous, they have given themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So this callousness results in indecency, impurity and greediness. Indecency here, in light of the culture in Ephesus, is talking about licentiousness. Ephesus as a city was a free-for-all when it came to sexual behaviour and sensuality. It's a freedom without any boundaries with relation to sensual appetites. That's what indecency means here. It's to practice sin with no concern for God and for anybody else. It's hedonistic. That's the way they became callous, an unbeliever, was callous in this practice. It resulted in impurity. In this context, it means moral impurity, not just sensual impurity. It's a broader definition. So not only were they indecent, but they were impure. A general defilement of the whole personality that taints every aspect of human life. And finally, greediness or coveting. It's something we don't talk about often today, is it? Coveting. What does it mean to covet? It means you absolutely want something that you already have plenty of. Alright? You go to a wonderful looking cake store, right? You see vanilla slices. I look out here, most of you have enjoyed vanilla slices. You have one vanilla slice, but actually you want another. You're crossing the line to coveting. You already have one, one's enough. Especially the size of vanilla slices you get in town, they're pretty large. Go to Josh's Cafe, they'll be even larger. But you know, coveting is that, that, that point in time where you covet after something you already have. You might have 10 pairs of shoes in your wardrobe. You might have 10 pairs of shoes in your wardrobe that are completely okay. Probably only been worn once. But you just need another pair of shoes. The process of coveting. You might have a watch, a perfectly good watch in your set of drawers. It might be a perfectly good watch, but you might have five others there and therefore you see another one and say, oh, I'd really like that watch. That's coveting. Or I really like that watch because that person there has got that watch. That's coveting. That's callous towards God. See this whole section here, 17 to 19, describes the unregenerate people who are totally consumed with self. This is the point he's trying to make. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be totally consumed with self. The self-absorption is a complete contrast to who you are in Christ. As we will discover in this next section. He's presented the nature and practice of the unregenerate and he's giving them a very strong warning. Don't go back into those ways because he knows the heart of man. Read Romans 7. He knows that it's sometimes very easy to slip back into these Practices. 
So then we move to the next section. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This particular paragraph, this particular sentence sets up the rest of the chapter as we will see. So he says, don't live like you formerly did. Don't walk like you formerly did. Because you did not learn about Christ like this. If indeed you heard about him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. That's the NET again. And I, I love the sharp contrast which Paul puts in here. Every time you see a button scripture, take special notice of it because it is a contrast. Remember back in Ephesians 2, we had that wonderful contrast. He had the same thing going on. He was talking about the former life, dead in trespasses and sins, and then in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. It's the same technique here. But this is not the way you learned Christ. If indeed you heard about him. Now when you have this if indeed, this is this is a beautiful thing. This is not... Oh, you might have heard about him. If indeed does not express doubt, it implies complete confidence and certainty that you have heard about him. It's a rhetorical way of saying, look, I know you've heard about him. I know you've learned him. I know you've been saved by grace through faith. I know you are believers because I serve with you for three years explaining the scriptures. Paul knew these people. He knew their character. He knew that they were regenerated. And he knew they were taught. See, I think in the context here, learned relates to first experience of salvation. And then notice that in verse 21, you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul knows this for a fact. He spent three years there teaching, four or five hours a day. He knew they knew who they were in Christ. It shows the importance and role of teaching in the life of the church. You go back to a little bit in this chapter and we discussed it there a couple of weeks ago that Christ gives gifts, certain gifts for the church and one of those gifts is the role of a teacher a pastor and a teacher why? to equip all the saints why? so you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine same sort of indication here the, the assumption of and importance of what has been taught shapes your walk. And then he highlights and amplifies three statements about the teaching. These are the three things you have been taught. You are to put off, you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you are to put on. 
put off, put on, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And these three things are fundamental aspects of the gospel tradition. They've been passed on to these believers by Paul. And he's reminding them, this is how you walk. This is your new identity. You need to be constantly putting off the old self. This is the transformation process. You need to put off the old desires and practices because those things stand in complete opposition to the gospel working in your life and through your life. Complete opposition. Secondly, you need to be renewed in your minds, verse 23. And this is a what we call a passive verb. So God is doing the renewing. God is constantly doing the renewing, which is a wonderful thing. How does he do that? The Spirit of God dwells within us. The Spirit of God is in us. The Spirit of God takes God's word and renews us. The Spirit of God illuminates the truth of God's word. It's not some mystical experience. It is God's word through his spirit which shapes and renews our minds. I think it would be a better way of actually describing this phrase would be to say and to be renewed by God in the spirit of your minds. God is the agent, but we are actively processing. Because we still need to be obedient to this. We need to be confronted by the truth of God's word and say, I need to repent and, and uh, be shaped by this. Because that's what the Spirit does. He refines. He shapes consistently. If you're a follower of Christ, you're just a tree, right? You're really, that's all you are. You're a tree and you're consistently being pruned for your own good and for God's glory. Now Romans 12.1 says this, be transformed by the renewal of your minds. The mind is an important thing in the process of transformation. It's an incredibly important thing. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 underscores this principle. And we all with a veiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Says what we think and know about Christ will dictate our walk. I use that all black analogy, right? Their new identity is based on the fact that they clean up after themselves. What they know about the culture of that team determines their practice. What you know about Christ will determine your practice. It's so clear what you know and think thinking and knowing always becomes before feeling the experience of thinking and knowing is a result of thinking and knowing and it's ongoing transformation our minds need to be transformed day by day hour by hour minute by minute you see it's really interesting too right because what, how, how do the Gentiles go with the mind issue their minds are futile right so an unregenerate the degradation of their life is due to the futility of their mind but with the Christian 
Righteousness depends on the constant renewing of our minds. And thirdly, put on the new self. So you put off your old ways, your old old vices in the power of the Spirit. You're renewed by the Holy Spirit in your mind. And you put on the new self. He explains that as a, a new person in Christ, you are created after the likeness of God. It's God's divine activity, but there is human responsibility to walk as a new person, seeking two things here, righteousness and holiness. Seeking righteousness and holiness. And the rest of the chapter starts explaining what righteousness and holiness looks like. So we'll get to that next week. But today, we are commanded to walk in a way that clearly shows that we are following Christ. We are marked by him, folks. We have his spirit within us. We are charged to follow the truth of Jesus, to learn Jesus, to be captivated by the truth of the gospel. The gospel is not just a one-time event. The gospel is a life event. His grace pours out upon us day in, day out and grows us in our sanctification. It's clear from this passage that the truth of Jesus, the gospel of grace, enables us to put off those desires, those things that so easily enslave us, to be renewed in our minds and to put on righteousness and holiness. This is the truth of the gospel and has implications for all of us in every aspect of our lives. As an employee this week, how will you put off put on and be renewed as an employer as you manage your staff are you doing it in a gospel centred way as a father and as a mother how do you deal with those kids in a gospel centred way how do you show the love and grace of God in, in those difficult discipline situations The answers are in God's word. To look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that in turn enables us to be renewed in our minds and walk a life according to his will. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we... Uh, We're immensely challenged by your word as we see these commands to put off the things that so easily enslave us. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds, we thank you that your spirit renews us daily. Father, give us a heart to be in your word daily, to see the transformation process and learn afresh more about Christ. And Father, enable us to put on holiness and righteousness. And Father, we haven't talked a lot about that today as we will do that in the next week or so. But give us a heart to be a people who thirst after holiness, who thirst after righteousness, 
Not because it gains any merit with you, but because that is a response to your superabounding grace in our lives. Father, we thank you that as by grace we have been saved. We thank you that you are transforming us. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.